I need to be extra mindful of time this morning because I've given children candy before class. So that means the clock is ticking. You can open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. If you're unfamiliar uh, with where to find Mark or unfamiliar with the Bible, just go to the front. It's just like any other uh, book in that it has like a list table of contents. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's one of the four books that focus on the life and teachings of Jesus. And when I say Mark chapter 8, in your Bible you'll see big numbers and a whole bunch of little numbers. The big numbers are chapters, and you can just find the, keep scrolling until you find Mark, and then the big 8, and we're going to be starting right at the, at the very beginning of Mark chapter 8. We're in, this, we're in a series going through the, uh, the gospel of Mark. We're hitting on every single verse in Mark. And as we do so, we're trying to expose ourselves to the life and teaching of Jesus and constantly draw out, how does this impact our life here and now? What does it look like to follow Jesus, to hear these words, to study them, but then to respond to them in the way that honors God and and brings Jesus glory? I think I'm going to stand over here, actually. I feel far away from you guys. I don't want to be far away. I want to be central and equidistant. Okay, Mark chapter 8. And we got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to go through 21 verses. So 1 to 21. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, his disciples answered Where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before, uh, sorry, uh, lost my place here. He set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Okay, we're going to pause there for a second. That's kind of the first section of Mark chapter 8. This is Jesus' account of feeding the 4,000. Now, if if you've been tracking with us, this should sound kind of familiar because two chapters ago in chapter 6, Jesus had a very, well, we, we encountered a very similar story where Jesus, using some loaves and some fishes, fed 5,000 people. And that has led some scholars and some people who would, who would view the text as, who would view the Gospels and indeed all of the New Testament as kind of cobbled together pieces, um, not the Word of God, uh, put together through later editors or groups of people. And this was, they would say, kind of an editing oversight. Someone put together Mark, and they were like, whoops, we kind of doubled the story. And awkward, no one, no one kind of uh, proofread this. Uh, I don't think that really has any credibility. First is we're going to see in a few verses down, Jesus references the previous um, miracle. So Jesus says, remember when I fed, fed the 5,000? And now here I am feeding 4,000. So there's a lot of similarities. And the stories seem to overlap in a lot of interesting ways. But they are two distinct events. And that's actually pretty important. Because what Mark is trying to show us 
in putting these events really close together like he does. The disciples had the first event. They were supposed to learn a lesson. Here they are in a similar, very similar second event, and they still haven't learned the lesson. So actually what Mark is highlighting is how kind of obtuse and dull these disciples were to pick up on Jesus' pattern of ministry. But there's also another interesting little turn here in that in Mark 6, Jesus is feeding predominantly Jewish people. He's in, um, he's in a territory and in a region that is dominated at least by Jewish synagogues. They're not in control politically, but there's a huge Jewish uh, um, influence there. In this last, in chapter 7 and 8 of Mark, Jesus has been taking a tour of kind of Gentile regions, right? The Decapolis, this is where he is. He's been teaching for three days. So the vast majority of these people are not, from a religious point of view, good, upstanding, God-fearing Jewish people. And that also gives us a bit of a difference between these two feedings that'll play into how we understand it. We also know that they're Um, uh, they don't come from a Jewish background because in this text, in Mark 8, a different word is used when it says Jesus gave thanks. It's a more general term that simply means giving thanks to God, whereas in Mark chapter 6, the word that is used refers to Jesus blessing God for giving the food, which is more of a Jewish way to give thanks. You bless God for providing the food, and the word that's used here in Mark when Jesus is is kind of amongst pagans and Gentiles, he leads them in a grace, but he gives thanks to God. It's a different word that is used. So the context of the feeding is a little bit different. Now, when I read a story like this, when I read an encounter like this, I think, if this is a different event, if this happened to them maybe a few weeks ago, and now they're in the same situation, how could the disciples have almost played out the exact same script? Like, they saw Jesus feed an army of people, and here they are in this context, and they're falling right back into the same trap. Where are we going to find the food? We're out in the middle of nowhere. We're going to have to send them home. They, they're so hungry, they're going to collapse along the way. All these beats are the same beats of the story. And it's very easy for us to look at that and to say, look at these idiots. They're not picking up on the pattern here, which is easy for us to judge because we're not like them, right? If God were to do something and provide in a miraculous way at a certain point of our life, if we ever found ourselves in the same situation again, we would automatically respond with deep faith and trust because God did that two years ago, 20 years ago in this situation. We would just be like, oh yeah, I've been here before. I know this script. I now I'm going to walk forward in full faith and full obedience, right? I mean, Mark's holding up a mirror and we should see ourselves in this, how quick we are to forget or to have such a low faith. Well, I know God did that then, but it was a, it was a different context and maybe that was a one-off and God's, God was gracious then, but maybe he's not going to be gracious now. Or he provided then, he's not going to provide now. Psalm 103, there's a command that the psalmist gives his own soul. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. That's a command. Praise, praise the Lord. He is God. And forget not all his benefits. The psalmist is commanding his own soul. He's saying, hey, you, hey, Jeff Strong, don't forget who this God is. And that has to be commanded because when you look at the sweep and scope of Scripture, so often God's people forget. God does something amazing. It's like, oh, God's amazing. Faith is chock full. Raw God, awesome. And then life goes on, and then you're in a situation, and then it's despair, or it's sorrow, or it's just like, oh, we're, 
we're, we're done for. Here we are in the same situation. And it's like people have completely forgotten that God is yesterday, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's faithful towards his covenant people. We have to command ourselves to remember the goodness of God. So part of it is maybe they just were forgetful like we are. And they had that blind spot. But it could also be, there could also be a legitimate reason why it wouldn't occur to them that Jesus would provide in this feeding like he did in the previous feeding. Because in the previous feeding, the context were good religious people, like God-fearing Jewish people, upstanding. Um, They had, obviously we're all sinners, we all have skeletons in our closet, but they just had a few bones. Like, they're pretty solid people. These are Gentiles. These are pagans. This is a huge swath of people that, yes, seem very interested in Jesus' message, but if we were to open up their closets from a Jewish point of view, it is full of skeletons. These are very unclean, immoral, non-righteous, non-God-fearing people. And so it does make sense from a prejudice point of view where some of the disciples would think, yeah, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. And of course, God provides food and good things for his people, but he doesn't provide that for these people. These aren't good, God-fearing people. So, uh, so we'll just leapfrog over that. So where are we going to get food for these people? And that's actually probably the way I would lean in the direction of interpreting what's happening here in Mark. That Mark's saying the disciples didn't learn their lesson in two ways. Number one, that Jesus was going to provide again, but also they didn't understand that Jesus' kingdom and his glory and his grace, the gospel, wasn't meant just for God's people Israel. It was meant to start with them and to move through them to the rest of the world. And that means the rest of the Gentile world. And that means the rest of people who aren't God-fearing and don't have their act together, whose lives, when you look at it, certainly from a religious viewpoint, comparing it to God's commands in the Torah, are tremendously derailed from that vision. And Jesus is trying to teach them that his message is for those people. And remember, he's training his disciples. One day I'm going to be gone. I'm going to send an advocate. I'm going to send a helper. But you're going to go into Gentile territory. And I need you to understand that the gospel is for these kinds of people, the kinds of people that you would just assume are um, offside in terms of God's grace and love being poured out to. People who can't merit God's grace. They don't have any religious um, chips to cash in with God. And yet we see Jesus reacting out of compassion. And that's what Jesus does. He says, I've had compassion on these people. It's the same word that Jesus used in the uh, last Sunday um, where, where Jesus, or, no, sorry, that's not true. I was thinking uh, two steps ahead. Uh, the word compassion here is a Hebrew word that means uh, kind of disturbed in my innards or guts. Like I'm, I'm sick to my stomach out of pity for these people. It's not just an intellectual, like, yeah, I could imagine what it would like to be hungry, and there's a lot of hungry people, and I see men, women, and children who are hungry and thirsty, and we should help them. It is Jesus being moved with compassion. He sees and identifies with these people and says, this is not right. We need to feed them. And that would be one point that I think is really important for us to hear, and that is the root of all ministry. And by ministry, I don't mean things that happen in and through the church, but things that happen in and through the lives of Christians, wherever they are. The root of all ministry is love and compassion towards people. That is the foundation. 
we can do all kinds of good things, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I don't have love, if love isn't undergirding that, and love, yes, is a commitment, but also, love is also a compassionate, uh, heartfelt identification and love towards another person. If I don't have that, then all these things aren't worth anything. All ministry has to be fueled by love and compassion towards people. Paul will later talk about in 2 Corinthians, he says, for Christ's love compels me, it drives me. Why do I go to the ends of the earth? Why am I putting uh, my life and my body in harm's way? Why am I willing to be chained up for the gospel? Why am I willing to put myself in, in, in such, in places of what people would look at as reckless risk? He says, because Christ's love compels me. It's not just an idea in my head, it's a reality. And I look and I see the need and I see people who are lost. And I'm compelled, I'm driven into action. And when I read a verse like that, for Christ's love compels us. And this idea that Jesus looks at this group of ragamuffins and says, I'm sick to my stomach in compassion for them. You know, I just feel like the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of confronts me like, Jeff, does that love live in your heart? Like, does that kind of love at work, is my love at work in your heart? Does the love of Christ live in your heart? It's not something you can manufacture. It has to be given to you. I think when you're born again, God plants the seed. And along the way, he gives us experiences whereby our eyes are opened to the true nature of suffering in this world. And he prompts us to act. We can suppress that. There's lots of ways that we can numb ourselves to it. And there are also ways that you can sensitize yourself to it. You can make yourself, you can put yourself in a position where the hurt and brokenness in this world will make you more upset in your stomach. And one of the great ways is simply to pray and ask that Jesus would give you eyes to see the true needs of people around you. Now that is not a prayer I would recommend praying unless you're kind of ready for rapid response because that is a prayer that in my experience, God does not, uh, he doesn't wait very long in granting that request. If we want to see the world as Jesus sees it, if we want to see suffering and hurt and opportunities to extend compassion where normally we would just walk by them, God is quick to answer that prayer because he wants us to be his body, his hands and feet in this world, continuing his mission, testifying to the kingdom, bringing the gospel to bear in word and deed in this world, in all the spheres of our lives. But you've got to be careful. Because if you do that, it really does begin to wreck your life. <laughs> and it creates all kinds of inconveniences for you, financially, time-wise, relationally, socially. Uh, your heart is going to begin to go out to people that yesterday you would have been completely indifferent to. You will, you will show up to your, uh, you know, you'll show up to your class and instead of just kind of moving through stuff, people's body language will impress itself upon you. And you'll find yourself being like, maybe I need to pray for that person. You'll walk down Baker Street instead of just moving through your list of stuff you need to get done you'll see situations that will prompt you to, again, at least pray, maybe even reach out in a, in a moment of compassion. Say hello, tell me your story, here's $2, or how can I help? 
it will cause you to come into and out of this space on Sunday morning differently. Because we all come here um, as people who in some, in fewer many areas of our lives, are experiencing hurt and brokenness. And God will sensitize you to the needs of the people that God has put you in community with in and through the local church. But it's a brave prayer, and I encourage you to consider uh, praying it. I have at different points in my life, and it is, it's powerful. So the root of all ministry is love and compassion towards people. But again, notice, this is the second point. Notice, like the first time, Jesus, notice how Jesus feeds the people. It's not magic. Snap my fingers. Boom. This food supply drops out of heaven. Jesus multiplies what's there, but he, uh, he, the feeding happens through the disciples. Jesus doesn't give out the food. He gives it through the disciples, and that is not insignificant. What Jesus intends to do now, to touch people, to teach people, to help people, to love people, to bring restoration into people's lives, to comfort the hurting, to, to mourn with those who mourn. What Jesus, the way Jesus is going to do those things is not, in a sense, independent of us. He's not going to do it on his own. He's going to do it in and through us. He's trying to teach the disciples that here. So when he's gone, they realize, oh, Jesus still intends to feed people through us. N.T. Wright says this, in his commentary on the book of Mark. The closer we are to Jesus, the more likely it is that he will call us to share in his work of compassion, healing, and feeding, bringing his kingdom work, sorry, bringing his kingdom work to an ever-widening circle. Unlike magicians in the ancient world who perform tricks to gain money or personal kudos, Jesus is concerned to bring his disciples into the work in which he is engaged. The Christian life as a disciplined rhythm of following Jesus involves not only being fed, but becoming in turn one through whom Jesus' love can be extended to the world. That's what it means to be a Christian, to learn, to receive from Jesus directly and indirectly through his people, but then to also become a conduit through which Jesus ministers and brings his healing compassion through our own unique personalities and the things that make us us. Because there's, see, there's a way of God touching this world that God can only do through me. Because I'm a unique conduit because of all the different experiences and personality and temperament and factors. And that means that there's a unique way that God wants to touch and shape this world through you. And see, that's why it's so important that we don't just um, segregate some group of professional Christians and say, well, they should do the ministry because they're talented or gifted in these ways. We want to unleash everybody for ministry because there are people in this community I cannot reach simply because of proximity, because of my own uh, background and experiences, but there are people that people in this room can reach that can love, that can um, feed, that can bring healing into their lives. We all have to be engaged. I'm really excited to share an upcoming ministry opportunity that has opened up for us as a church. Um, And it has come out of a group of people in our church encountering this, having compassion, wanting to, you know, they're hearing what's happening on Sunday. They're hearing this call for me to 
um, look for ways to bless and to serve the community. They're saying, yeah, we want to be a part of that. And in talking together, an opportunity is presented uh, itself, and uh, it's really, really exciting. The timeline on it's kind of short, but I'm going to invite uh, Mike McIndoe up, and he's going to kind of tell us what his small group has been incubating. I think that's on. I think it's yeah, on. That's, that's, thanks, Jeff. Um, we meet on Wednesdays at our house, and, and as a small group, we've been wrestling for a couple of weeks with how are we going to impact our community the way Jeff has challenged us. One of the things that I'm involved with is I'm involved with an organization called Community Connect Day, and many of you are familiar with it. Um, it's a day of the third Saturday in November, which is aimed at reaching out to the people in our community that are homeless or at risk of being homeless. And uh, every year, Community Connect Day feeds and clothes about 300, 350 people from our community who fall into that risk of homelessness uh, category, or indeed are homeless people. They're people who are couch surfing. They're people that are a day away from being evicted from their homes. Um, and it's not just uh, men and women. Unfortunately, it's oftentimes children. And uh, I'm on the committee uh, as a Rotarian. I'm on the committee that helps feed those people. And I was at a meeting last week, and they really struggled with wanting to give the homeless or at risk of homeless people winter weight socks. And, and they talked about it for like 10 minutes, and they simply don't have the budget to do it. Winter weight socks are minimum 5 bucks, 10 bucks a pair. And uh, they just reluctantly walked away from it. And, and I honestly don't know what happened, and sometimes I have a big mouth. And I said, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. My church will donate 150 pair of winter weight socks. <laughs> I came home and I said, Dinica, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> We met as a small group a couple of nights later, and I said, I'm in trouble. Uh, I have volunteered our church to donate 150 pairs of socks to the homeless in our community. And our small group said, that's fabulous. We're all over this. We're going to do this. We're going to make it happen. Um, it's something we can do. So we have our SOS. SOS stands for Save Our Souls. <laughs> L-E-S. And what I'm asking, what our small group is asking is for us to fill this box up with 150 pairs of socks. If we get 200, that would be good. If we get 250, that would be great. If we get 300 and every person that walks to the door gets a pair of winter socks, that would be truly amazing. Mm-hmm. So over the, and it's a, it's a short time frame. Over the next couple of weeks, um, we're asking you to come and drop these off. Um, if you want to give some money to the church and, and on your check, say this is for SOS or souls or socks, um, that's fine. We can, we can buy them. Uh, Enoch and I have done quite a bit of homework, and we found that probably the best deal on winter weight, again, remember, winter weight socks. These are people who are on the street and are cold. And the best deal on winter weight socks is probably at Walmart. Um, and you can get two pair of really nice heavy wool socks for $10. Those are women's socks, and the men's socks are just the same. And the best deal for the little guys, we do have some little guys in here, is probably at the Wholesale Club. And these are $8 for two pair of winter weight socks. I can see why people that are at risk of homelessness can't afford 5 or $7 for a pair of socks. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. We as a church want to give these to those people. 
And my end note is this. When I said that, all these professional people that work out of Nelson Cares, social workers, street workers, they were flabbergasted that our church would want to do this. And, and that smacked me. Like, I, I thought, why are they surprised? Hmm. Anyway, save our souls. Next few weeks, bring them in and drop them off, please. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And thanks for everyone involved in Mike's small group. This is exactly what I hope would be happening in and through small groups in our church. That not just, we don't just gather for ourselves to feed and comfort each other, but we also look for ways to engage in mission in our community. And this is a huge way. And it's sad to hear that kind of uh, stakeholders in our community uh, among at-risk population would be surprised that our church would be willing to do that. Um, And are there 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 any other churches involved in this day, Mike? Yeah, uh, Kootenai Christian. So Kootenai Christian, you know, Matt Osipchuk does a lot of free dental work that day. Him and his team uh, go really hard for most of the day in providing free dental care. But this is an easy way, and I know that Mike's um, small group, like they want to attach little cards to each pair of socks that just says, with love from Nelson Covenant Church. I would also challenge us too, as a top-up, because I think we can do more than socks. I'd like to just give, just as a blessing, like a 5 or $10 gift card from Oso or a local coffee shop with that. So when you're picking up the socks, what I'm going to try and do is pick up adult socks, kid socks, and a, a card for coffee, and, uh, or obviously hot chocolate or a treat or whatever. And that's up to you. But I think it'd be really great to give out socks and a card that says, this is from Nelson Covenant Church. We love you. And also like a little gift certificate from somewhere. So that's just me. But I think that's an awesome, easy thing that we can do. I know the group was inspired last week by, or, or challenged by my question, you know, what do we need to do so that people, our community is amazed that this group of people would want to glorify God this way and reach out and, and love people who are going to provide no return on investment for it. this is this is just complete um, generosity and uh, it's really great to hear that already people involved in Nelson cares are like wow um, verse 11 the Pharisees came to question Jesus and to test him they asked him for a sign from heaven he sighed deeply that's the same word that Jesus used last week or that was used last week when um, he was going to heal the man who was uh, deaf and had difficulty speaking when he, cr- when he sighed deeply. It just means groaned. It's like Jesus is like exasperated. It's like, oh, are you kidding me? It's like, ugh. It's that word. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Jesus has just provided this miraculous healing, and then these religious authorities come and say, okay, we get that miracles are happening but we're not really sure the source of those miracles. Is, is it really from God, or maybe is it some more nefarious, demonic source? Give us a sign. And so really what they're asking for at this point is, Jesus, give us incontrovertible proof, have a voice from heaven come, or have God somehow make it just manifestly obvious that you are his representative. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm not going to give you a sign. And part of that is Jesus saying, your hearts are set on unbelief. You've decided not to believe. Unbelief in the Bible doesn't mean you have doubts or you struggle with putting your full faith in something. Unbelief, it means anti-belief. And the Pharisees have anti-belief. They're not looking for a sign, and if one was given, they would actually say, oh, you really are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. We are going to yield to you. 
they keep throwing this thing of sign in Jesus' face because they're just looking for an excuse to keep God at arm's distance, at arm's length. For people whose heart is set on unbelief, no sign is ever going to suffice. And what we see here is Jesus doesn't bend over backwards for hard-hearted people because he's wise enough to understand it wouldn't matter if he did. What, what sign is going to happen that these guys are going to say, oh, that did it. Raising a little girl from the dead, mm, feeding people, healing people, touching lepers and making them clean. No, we need like something, that's like a 9 and a 10, pretty good. But if you could give it, like, what? And Jesus is even going to say in another gospel that the only sign that's going to be given is a sign of Jonah where I'm going to go into the belly of the beast for three days, I'm going to go into death, I'm going to come back out, and then even still they aren't going to believe. And that's true, right? Jesus was literally resurrected from the dead. He showed himself to some people, and some people were like, hmm, not too sure. And I think there's something there for us here, because in, in the course of your life, in your relationships, in your family, in your friendships, there, there are going to be people who simply will, like from their willpower, they will to not believe. They will not believe. They're not, look, they're, not, they're not spiritual seekers, as we would think of them. They've just decided to be against belief. They think it's childish or foolish or how, however it's concocted in their minds. And regardless of what evidence you put before them, their heart is set on unbelief. And I think you should love those people. I think you should care for them. But I think you also need to recognize that you shouldn't bend over backwards trying to convince them of God's truth. Because Jesus didn't bend over backwards for those kinds of people. He loves them. He engages with them but he doesn't, in a sense, give them what they want because that, that's not going to go anywhere. A lot of these people want to be right. They want to be in control. They want to have the self at the center, and we just have to kind of say, nothing that we say or do or book that we give them is going to dislodge that. That has to be something that the Holy Spirit dislodges in, in their heart. And so invest in relationships where people are eager to grow and learn and, and be careful not to get sucked into... Um, I've heard, I've heard the term kind of emotional vampires. Um, those people who are just constantly taking, you know, sucking the life out of you. These, these are kind of like spiritual vampires. They'll just give us more and more proof, more proof, more science, more more this. It's a losing battle. And we see Jesus walk away from these people. And it's totally okay in your life to have boundaries and say, when you're ready to really honestly seek God and be open and your heart isn't set on unbelief, we can continue the conversation. But until then, um, I'm going to invest in people who are genuinely seeking God and want to know the truth. Verse 13, then he left them. He got back into the boat, crossed to the other side. And then the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And Jesus says, be careful, he warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And the disciples look at each other, and they discuss this with, with each other. I, th I think it's because we don't have any bread. <laughs> Jesus is rebuking them and they think it's because he's mad at them because they forgot bread because they should have gathered up the leftovers or something and brought all of them and they only brought one. So they're, they're, again, they're kind of a little bit clueless of what's going on. Aware of this, Jesus says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Do you, not, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the, lo the five loaves for the 5,000, so he's referencing this happened before, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. Yeah. And, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 
seven. And then he said to them, do you still not understand? Now this is important to see what's going on here because really Jesus is warning about the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herods. He says, be on your guard. Watch out for this, this, this um, well, yeast in dough is something that is hidden. It is something that is unseen. It's an internal thing. And it's something that not always, but predominantly in the New Testament is connected with something that corrupts very insidiously from the inside. It seems very small, but it works itself out and affects the whole system. You put a little bit of yeast in the bread, you can't contain it within that piece of bread. It will just spread through the whole thing. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be very careful on the heels of this miracle. I want you to be very careful to um, guard against this corrupting influence that'll happen on the inside. It's not going to come from outside. It's going to be something in here. And it's the, fair, it's the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And he's not warning them, obviously, about the wrong kind of bread. What he's saying is the Pharisees and Herod have ve- two very different visions of how the kingdom of God gets established in this world. The Pharisees said the kingdom of God is going to be established through our righteousness, self-righteousness, literally, if we get serious about the Bible, get serious about religious practice, get serious about sin and, and confessing sin and confessing other people's sins and, and really amping up religious obedience, then God will reward us. That's how the kingdom will get established. That's why God will move because the cause of it will be our righteousness. So that's the hope. If we can just get enough righteous people acting righteously and turning away from sin, that's our hope. That was the yeast of the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees labored under. That's why they became so focused on every kind of jot and tittle of the law and creating all these um, branching sub-rules to the bigger rules to make sure that they were enforcing the rules in every possible context, and they lost the force for the trees, and they became so blinded by just outward religious practice, they forgot that the real hope was about being transformed from the inside, from being born again. So Jesus says, be careful not to think that it's through your own righteousness that we're going to make a difference in the world. And he says, don't be, be careful that the, the yeast of Herod doesn't infest your life. Herod was the big Jewish ruler. We've talked about him a little bit before, but if you don't know, the Coles notes is he was tremendously powerful. He was tremendously wealthy. He was tremendously well-connected, but he was kind of a puppet king. He ruled in uh, uh, one of the uh, areas in Israel, and he really worked for Rome, but he was tremendously powerful because he was kind of in bed with the empire and wasn't a, a practicing God-fearing Jew, but he was technically the king of the Jews or the ruler over Israel. And when Jesus says, be careful of of this yeast, this influence, this corrupting influence, he's saying, be careful of the corrupting influence that assumes the way the kingdom of God is going to come is through worldly power and worldly wealth. If we just had enough money, if we just had the right people, like what's the hope for Nelson? The hope for Nelson would be if we could get all the major stakeholders, like the power players in Nelson, if they all got converted and they all started coming to our church, then we could really move forward. Then it would unleash because really the key to making things happen in terms of uh, God's kingdom coming in a way that is transformative and real is through kind of on the level of politics, social politics, 
connectedness of people, networking, knowing the right people, or having access to power and wealth such that people want to defer to you because you are a major economic stakeholder in the, in the, in the community. And in a sense, Jesus says, okay, you just experienced this miracle, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, thousands of people hungry, they have nothing. How, what was the cause of that miracle? Was it your own righteousness? Did, did, did you, was this miracle, did it spring up in response to your greatness and your goodness? Did it spring up because the right people were there? You had the right connections uh, politically. All of a sudden we had all this money and, and that's how we could meet these needs. Jesus says, no. And the inference is, why did that miracle happen? The miracle happened because I was there. And if I'm there, and if you're making me central, the kingdom's going to flow. It's going to happen. But don't be tricked into deceiving like these other groups within Judaism that like, well, yeah, we need God involved for sure, but what will really make the difference is fill in the blank. And Jesus, in a sense, is trying to train his disciples and to say, you need to always fill in that blank with Jesus. You need to always say the thing that's going to make the difference is Jesus. We could have all the money in the world. We could have all the political connectedness. We could have tremendous goodwill in this community. We could be tremendously, by all measures, genuinely righteous, good, God-fearing people. And kingdom advancement in our community could totally stall. Because that's not what brings it about. Those things aren't bad things necessarily, they're just not the thing that actually gives engine to the kingdom of God, the thing that gives engine to the kingdom of God. Well, we'll see it here. Do you notice what preceded the miracle? Jesus says, I've had compassion on these people. They've already been with me three days, and they've had nothing to eat. That's the, that's the, the, the spark that gets this whole miracle started. These people have gathered. They're seeking after God. They're willing to learn from God. Remember, these are non-Jewish pagans. But they are sincerely seeking. They've been traveling and sitting at Jesus' feet and trying to understand, turn to him, listen to him, listen to his good news message. They haven't come seeking seeking miracles. Yeah, that's great. We can do the, the sermon thing after, but can you, like, heal me and bring me up to speed quick? Like, that'd be good. Let's do that first. They're totally willing to just be in surrender to Jesus. They're scarcely conscious of their own physical hunger. And one commentator said, in such a climate for such a people that are simply hungry to know and experience Jesus, Jesus is going to work this miracle. He's going to give them food that they didn't seek first. What did they seek first? They sought Jesus first. I mean, what we're seeing here is an application of Matthew 6.33, where Jesus says, seek first, um, seek first his kingdom, God's, and his righteousness, and all these other things very practical needs of, of everyday life. They'll be given to you, but they flow out of you seeking me. See, the kingdom comes not through our righteousness, which the Pharisees would presume. The kingdom doesn't come through our power and wealth and political connectedness like Herod assumed, but the kingdom comes through Jesus' love, grace, and power working in us and through us. And that's important because as we do these initiatives, whether it's shoeboxes or save our souls or in our own lives, our hope has to be grounded in that we have come before Jesus every day humbly and saying, Jesus, would you use me? If I never come before Jesus, if I don't spend time in prayer, here's a diagnostic. If 
you and I don't spend time honestly in prayer and in scripture and wrestling with God and saying, God, change me for me. Give me eyes to see compassion. I, I need your help today. If we aren't doing that, might one of the reason be what we really think will bring the kingdom is just our own strategies. We, we have the money that we need. We have the connection that we need. We have the education that we need. We have the resource. You fill in the blank. So for sure, prayer is good. And we'll, I'll throw up a flare prayer every once in a while. But I don't need to really seek Jesus because the thing that I really need to bring the kingdom, I already have. And Jesus says, be careful of that kind of yeast in your life. Be careful of that kind of hidden corruption. Again, your education is not bad. Your connectedness isn't bad. Your power and your wealth socially, that's not bad. When you begin to trust in those things to be the mechanism of redemption in the world, it's, 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 it's going to go rotten really, really, really quick. The kingdom doesn't come by human means. It goes through human channels, but it doesn't come from human means. It's supernatural. So may we understand that vision and may we continue to learn what it means to walk in it faithfully. Let's pray. God, thank you for people who are hungry for you and out of their hunger for you are now seeing opportunities to reach out with compassion. And God, we invite you by the power of your Holy Spirit to use us as a church in the weeks ahead for these initiatives, for initiatives in our own life. But God, I think it's amazing that there's so many people uh, already in this community that are hearing about uh, good news things coming from this church. And we want that to continue, God. We want um, your blessing and your goodness and your shalom and your kingdom to come here in Nelson. But our trust is in you, Lord. Um, you are the alpha and the omega of that entire process. And so we yield it to you and ask that you would teach us to walk in that truth. And we ask this in your strong and mighty name. Amen.